Today's edition of The Profile was first broadcast before the results of the US presidential election. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Briley and this week on The Profile I'm joined by author, pastor, Christian thinker Brian McLaren and we're going to be talking about his new book The Great Spiritual Migration. He's authored many other influential books as well. Uh, if you want to find more interviews with other Christians in all walks of life, can I recommend that you go to the website of Premier Christianity magazine and you can find all kinds of interviews and features there. Uh, you can also ask for a free sample copy of the magazine. I'm Justin Bradley. I'm the senior editor of the mag and I can heartily recommend it. I am of course entirely biased in doing that but uh, I do hope you'll go and uh, have a look at what's on offer premierchristianity.com slash free sample in order to ask for a free sample copy of the latest magazine uh, Brian welcome along to the program great to be with you again it's, it's great to see you um, it's it's nice that you're able to come over here to the UK every so often um, do you have any ties to the UK apart from the fact that you like to come and tell us about things that you're up to <laughs> Well, I have many friends here. Uh, Steve Chalk and I have been good friends from Oasis and then uh, many good friends from the Greenbelt uh, community. Mm. And, and in a way, those names and that organization sort of, I suppose, to some extent, exemplify in many ways the kind of area that you've really moved into. Um, there are different labels that mm. are put on this, sometimes progressive Christianity, yeah. um, post-evangelical, those sorts of things. Um, what do you do with labels? Do you, do you like them? Do you wear any? Yeah. Well, of course, uh, you, you always have to ask what the other person <laughs> means by the label. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it really is tricky for me being uh, from the U.S. right now because, uh, for example, in the U.S., the word evangelical, especially in this election cycle, has uh, you know come to mean a set of things that certainly I don't feel fit me. Well, this is very much what we were hearing from in this very same uh, interview space. Tony Campolo recently, yes, uh, yes. who who says he he just doesn't use the word yes. evangelical anymore because of its associations. Yeah. Um, he he obviously has formed red letter Christianity. He's yeah. seeing that, that the words Jesus spoke uh, in some ways take priority and so on. I mean, can the word evangelical be rehabilitated? Is it is it something we just have to abandon now? Find a new word. What what's your view? Well, I I don't abandon it myself. It's an accurate statement of my heritage mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, and in any label, there's always a range of people from some who are more progressive to others who are more conservative or even regressive in some ways. So, uh, you know, if you leave that label, well, then if you say, well, I'm just a Christian, well, the same problems exist in Christianity. And in fact, the same problems exist in humanity. So uh, I'm happy to uh, keep working with the label, but try to uh, embody an alternative. If, if, if you used that of yourself, what would you mean by, by well, it? Well, I think uh, it's funny. I was with a group of young uh, people from evangelical backgrounds recently talking about this very question. Mm. And what they said is, uh, of course, they weren't speaking theologically. They were just mm. speaking personally. What yeah. they said is evangelicals are entrepreneurial, meaning mm -hmm. that they're inventive, creative. Mm -hmm. They aren't bound by a bunch of uh, bureaucratic rules and so on. And there's passion. There's a yeah. sense that faith is is a matter of passion in the heart, not just a matter of the head and opinions. Yeah, I, I suppose that could easily be what someone thinks of evangelical as. Um, many people would also include having a high view of scripture, yeah. um, the, 
being at some level evangelistic in yes. in believing that there has to be some kind of personal commitment yes. to Christ and so on. Well, there, uh, it's interesting when you say high view of Scripture. This is mm. really one of our problems because uh, because what's hidden in that word high is mm. interesting. You know, mm. for a lot of people, high view of Scripture means you're not allowed to ask questions of it or yeah. you're not allowed to think critically about it. Mm. That's what I was I was brought up with that kind of evangelicalism. Yeah. Yeah. And that works fine for many people, but many people feel dishonest if they mm, can't mm. if they can't raise the questions that need to be raised and face scholarship and other issues that need to be raised. So I think um, there, especially in the states, there's a kind of regressive evangelicalism that's bolting down all the uh, right. you know all the bolts and uh, and and circling the wagon, so to speak, and uh, becoming less open to critical thinking than before. Well, there's lots I want to talk to you about from the book, um, from what's going on in the States at the moment, obviously having a completely crazy election year, mm. um, <laughs> unlike anything I think you guys have seen before. Certainly in my lifetime, um, that's right. So, so we'll get to that. Let's go back to the beginning, though, for those who perhaps aren't familiar with your story. You've hinted a little bit at it already. You did grow up in a Christian environment. Yes. Um, what, in retrospect, you realised was quite a sort of fundamentalist kind of mm-hmm. uh, church upbringing. Do you yeah. want to describe, though, the, both the good and the bad? In sure, that sense? sure. Well, the, the good was I come from a beautiful, loving family. Mm-hmm. Church was part of our lives. I think we were at church at least three times a week. Uh, uh, we very, my, we read the Bible around the dinner table. I'm so grateful f- that I grew up just immersed in the scriptures and immersed in love. And, uh, uh, you know, and my, my parents couldn't have been better parents. Uh, so so much positive things like youth group and summer camp these are all great elements of my spiritual upbringing mm, mm. as well the in- emphasis on missions meant that from a young age i i knew where india was i knew where you know congo and angola were and mm. many of my peers didn't have that sense of a world connection sure. you know? we had missionaries in our home from around the world so a sense of connectedness you know that's all very positive mm. on on the more critical side uh I remember being uh, in in uh, middle school, uh, and uh, my Sunday school teacher said, "You have to choose. You can either believe in God or evolution." And I remember thinking, "Evolution makes a lot of sense to me." And mm. you know, wh- why is it this way? Why do I have to choose? And uh, so, a very literalistic way of reading the Bible. Uh, uh, you know that that doesn't work well for a, a young boy with a lot of curiosity. It's interesting that dichotomy, that that stark choice, wouldn't necessarily be put in front of many young Christians in a Sunday school here in the UK, even right. in even in reasonably evangelical churches. Yes, um, it still would in the states, and but there, I think, would be parallel issues that mm. aren't resolved around around uh, the world in the Christian community. So you know, the the average young person has many friends now who are gay and out, mm. and these are their friends at school they're not stigmatized well they they might be by their peers but not officially stigmatized not institutionally stigmatized uh at, at school or in public life but then they go to church and they realize well here they are you know it creates a similar kind of uh mm. dissonance for people mm. i think so growing up would you say that you did retain to some extent that that kind of quite strictly sort of evangelical view, literal view of scripture and so on as, as you were going uh, it's, along? It was the only option. And, mm. the, you know, the great enemy in books and in sermons was the liberals. And, and you know, they were the, yeah. the dangerous, dangerous mm. people. And uh, so I was, I inherited all of those assumptions, yeah. 
at what point would you say did you ever experience as some people like and i've often met them especially f- f- from the u.s people who have had basically a crisis of faith yeah. at the point where all of those things started yeah. to collide with the world they were discovering yes. so outside, I, outside of the bubble as it I, were. I think i had at least two of those major crises mm. uh, the first one occurred in uh, my senior year of secondary school where i'd had very powerful spiritual experiences you know deep experiences with mm. the holy spirit um but uh, i think my brain hadn't caught up to those uh, emotional experiences and uh, so I went through a real period of doubt. I thought I might just leave this whole thing. Uh, th- then I, years later, I'd become a pastor, and uh, it, I, I'll never forget. There was a period of months where I had so many people who were new to the church. Many of them had come to faith at our at our church, and then they would come and make appointments with me, and they'd ask questions uh, mm. about the Bible, about mm. grace, mm. Uh, things that I I was teaching that I had learned and I was passing mm. on. And I remember uh, often they would leave and I'd think, well, they left with my answers, but I'm left with their questions. Yeah. I thought their questions were better than my answers. So there right. was a, I went through a, a rough couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I guess you'd, you'd started off then um, in, in a kind of traditionally, let's say, evangelical kind of yeah. ministry and church. Um, I'm guessing that your your views started to evolve and change over time. How did that sit with the members of your church? Well, I here's where I was extremely fortunate. Um, the I, I remember there was a leadership meeting we had, and one of uh, it was after I'd written my first book, and uh, one of the uh, leaders in our church said, "We have to make a decision whether Brian's journey is Brian's journey or whether it's our journey too." Right. And the leaders said. Uh, it's our journey. All of us are grappling with these issues. All of us sense these things going on. So so I was very fortunate to have the support of the leaders uh, of my church. But um, we had many people come to visit the church who would say, well, we don't, this isn't what we want to be part sure. of here. And, and did you have, you know, some conflicts within the church, within people who oh, have been members for some time? Well, so? constantly. I mean, all pastors know that there's always people coming and going and people who are happy and unhappy for any number of reasons. But, uh, you know, w- w- when we when we would start, especially when we started talking about issues that people considered political, for example, concern mm. about the poor, mm. um, in, in my country, issues of race, um, a- a- in the years uh, after September 11th, questions about how Christians and Muslims will get along. Uh, those kinds of issues made, made a lot of people uncomfortable because they're, uh, e- even though those issues weren't discussed in the church, uh, the, the silence actually indicated a position. Right. And for us to raise those questions, people said, well, this mm. isn't what we're, mm. this isn't what we're hearing on the radio, actually, is yeah. what they'd often say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you, your, your book, um, a, a New Kind of Christian and yes. new kind of Christianity as well um, have were, were quite influential. What, why do you think they got picked up and so um, shared so widely? Yeah, well, a new kind of Christian was written in a fiction, a fictional format, so it was mm. a story, and I think that helped. But it was a story of tension, uh, a, a feeling that we belong to two different worlds. Uh, uh, what I call in the book a modern world and a postmodern world, and I think that sense of of tension resonated with a lot of people. They, a lot of people feel torn. Uh, they, they know there's something so deeply true and right in their faith in Christ, but they also have a sense that 
that there's something out of sync with the the world they live in, and I think they they, they felt some felt scared. Uh, I've mm. had so many people tell me five or ten or thirty pages into the book they put it aside or threw it away. Or right. I've had a few people yeah. tell me they threw it across the room right. because they were scared by th- that it was opening issues that they were trying to keep suppressed. That and that book as well, and your rate, uh, your the fact that your profile was obviously rising as well was inevitably going to bring you into conflict with other senior Christian figures yeah. in the USA and and elsewhere, um, and particularly, you know, there there are some fairly strong views out yeah. there yeah. in in the reform sections of <clears throat> yes. the Christian Church and elsewhere. How how did you navigate that? Because obviously you yeah. were getting a lot of criticism, yeah. um, as well as obviously those who were appreciating what yeah. you were writing. Well, uh, you know, it, I was really unprepared for it. Uh, my first couple of books got you know very positive reviews, and uh, and then I think with a new kind of Christianity, uh, that was where a lot. Of, uh, I'm sorry, a new kind of Christian. Mm. That's where a lot of very negative uh, reviews came in. Mm. Uh, I. Uh, a respected magazine in the U.S. Uh, said that they were going to publish a, a hostile review, a critical mm. review, a sympathetic review, and then allow me to respond. Right. And it was late at night, and I was writing my response, and I was so defensive, and I was so uptight, and mm. I just thought, this isn't how I want to be, you mm. know. Mm. And so I, I, it was a kind of spiritual moment of saying, uh, of really praying, how should I respond to these issues? Uh, I understood the critique. I understood. I was raising very important questions and mm. uh, taking a minority view. Uh, so I prayerfully said, this is going to have to be a, a place where I grow deeper in my roots mm. in Christ and where I try to respond in a responsible way. Sure. Um, I mean, we'll we'll come to those issues because I think they're all mixed in yeah. as well in, in the book, The Great Spiritual Migration, which is your, your latest work. But um, I want to kind of stick at this point in our in our interview with really how you sort mm. of reacted yes. to, to your growing stature you yeah. know your the, the the influence you had and so on you you were often aligned with a movement that came to be termed the emerging church now yes. firstly what what do you think that was and what yeah. were other people claiming it to be well uh interestingly in the early and mid 90s after the kind of church growth movement and a lot of the charismatic movement uh, where there had been this sense, oh, things are coming alive, things are growing. Even in evangelical and charismatic settings, a lot of leaders started realizing we're losing our younger generation. It mm. was kind of the the baby boomers realizing that gen- Generation X and the millennials were not as thrilled with what they were doing. And uh, so uh, a, a group of us got together trying to address that. Even though I was of the older generation, uh, I was sympathetic to, these, mm. uh, to those concerns. And... Um, so I, I think uh, we, we sensed that something was emerging out of the, uh, out of the modern church, and that's where this mm. word postmodern came in. And mm. it, it didn't just involve different conclusions on certain questions. It involved a different set of questions. Uh, and I'll just give you an example. Uh, Catholics and Protestants have argued for uh, close to 500 years. Uh, one side says we have an infallible pope, and the other side says we have an infallible Bible. Well, I think as you come into this postmodern era, one of the best ways to make people not believe something is to say we have an infallible authority source. <laughs> uh, so people reject that kind of 
top-down kind of authority yes. everywhere, including in religion. And, and people have good reasons to, mm. because they, they look back and say, well, with your infallible Bible, you've done some pretty terrible mm. things. And with your infallible magisterium, uh, you've done some pretty terrible things. And so uh, people start to have moral and intellectual problems with, with claims to infallibility. Mm. So you're in one setting where somebody wants you to say that we have an infallible Bible. The, the challenge for an evangelical is, you know, as soon as you step out of evangelical uh, circles to try to bring good news to other people, uh, that word infallible or inerrant, you know, is is uh, uh, there's nothing positive about it. Right. It doesn't help you in any way. Even if you've carefully nuanced that within your theological conferences, it, it just doesn't, you're not going to be able to sort of Exactly. Make that clear outside of that. Exactly right. And, uh, and uh, you know, there are places where it's painfully obvious. Uh, I'm old enough, I, I, I just turned 60, that when I was a boy, I heard sermons that were for segregation, right? That, right. That blacks and whites should not be together, no interracial marriage, wow. that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, here we are. Uh, 50, 60 years later. I don't think many people hear sermons like that anymore, thank God. But there are still a lot of places that will have sermons about why women should not be leaders. And, mm. uh, you know, so, and for people outside the church, are, it doesn't matter that you're arguing from uh, an in, inerrant Bible. Just the fact that you're still having a discussion about whether women are equal is a huge challenge. Yeah. You know? uh, now, now there's many people who will be absolutely sympathetic to what you're saying there, yes. but obviously there are Christians who will say, "Well, actually, I do believe yes. there's that. Yes, the Bible has a very particular view of male headship and, yes. and that's those yes. sorts of things." Yes. And what you're asking us to do, Brian, is just to capitulate to the culture and, and mm. just follow exactly whatever they say should be the the predominant thinking now yeah and and for many people that they'll say but that's exactly what the bible calls us to stand against we're not supposed to just go with the flow yes um so yeah. it's yes of course people are going to object to some of the the stands we take principled stands on certain yes. issues within the church um so so what, what's your response to that well uh Here's the irony, uh, and let me speak as an American. I think mm. there'd certainly be parallel issues uh, here in the UK. Um, the church was the last place to face the issues of race in our culture. It still hasn't. Our churches are still more segregated than any other part of society. Um, and yet, parts of the church were also leaders, Martin Luther King yeah, in, and, in civil rights. So, so that's right. I guess it's... It depends on which bit of the church you're looking at. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. right. Exactly right. Um, uh, so if we were to talk about the predominantly white evangelical mm. church, it, it you know, it's still, I mean, the fact that they're the base of Donald Trump's support with mm. all of the sort of racial uh, insinuation of, of his campaign, it tells you, it tells you something. So ironically, I think for a lot of us who grew up in the church, we would have to say, concerns for justice and kindness and, you know, uh, things that really seem to matter in the scriptures have been carried out gr more powerfully outside the church than inside the church. So when people say you're just capit capitulating to the culture, in some ways we'd have to say, well, uh, we we kind of have the sense that the Holy Spirit it might be working outside the church uh, along with mm. inside the church, mm. and so we're trying to respond to the Spirit wherever uh, wherever we see the Spirit working. You know, sure. Um, 
you've mentioned Donald Trump, mm. and maybe that's a good time to uh, <laughs> to get onto that particular yeah. subject. Uh, uh, I spoke to Eric Metaxas on this program recently. Yes. Uh, he's a well-known evangelical yes. author, radio broadcaster out in the USA. He's backing Donald Trump. I'm shocked by that. Just shocked, yeah. Um, and he says, you know, he, he put it this way, um, it is the lesser of two evils for yes. him. He doesn't like Donald Trump. He yes. would never have been his favorite candidate as a Republican candidate. Mm. But he obviously sees Hillary as a great enough threat to, yes. and I think he's prime concerns are things like religious freedom yes. in, in the USA. I think he's, he sees some of the things she said as suggesting if you don't agree with, say, same-sex marriage, you're going to have to change your views. And, yes. and so he believes there's a greater threat to liberty and freedom. And even though we don't quite know what we're getting with Trump, yeah. it's still a safer bet than yeah. knowing exactly what we are getting with yeah. Hillary. Now, this stuff is maybe a little bit removed from what we're, we, yes. we, we experience here in the in the UK. But that's his argument yep. what, what's your response to him I think it's an incredibly short-sighted argument uh, I, I I'll I mean uh, on, on many levels but uh, I, I suppose a good place to start is when when white people say that they will choose a candidate solely based on their position on abortion it means that they're saying to all of their african-american uh, Latino and Muslim uh, and other Asian uh, neighbors, your issues are unimportant to us. All we care about is our own internal issues. Um, and I understand for some Christians, the issue of abortion is so primary that they're willing to put everything else on the back burner. The irony of this for me is I've done a good bit of reading and research in this over the years. Um, uh, if you want to reduce the number of abortions, criminalizing abortion is not a good way to do it. Uh, there's so much data about this from around the world uh, that when you criminalize abortion, you reduce its safety uh, for, for the women involved, but you actually don't reduce the number of abortions. There are far better ways to reduce the number of abortions. And ironically, under President Obama, um, the number of abortions has reached a, a low uh, since uh, the 1980s. Right. And uh, and in fact, ironically for us, the more liberal candidates have better health care policies that end up reducing abortion. Mm. So all that's to say, I think there I think there are other deeper issues. I'd be glad right. to talk about sure, those if sure. you'd like to. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when someone like Eric Metaxas does yeah. encourage his audience yeah. to vote for Donald Trump, over Hillary um, and says that this is because of such and such Christian prerogatives that yeah. we, should, we should be bearing in mind. And, and he's certainly not alone. Other significant evangelicals, Wayne Grudem and yeah. um, Norm Geisler and yes. many others have, have, have also said that. Um, do you just think it, that the things they obviously prioritise, which are abortion, religious liberty and those sorts of things, are simply a different set of priorities yeah. to, to the ones you think should be first and foremost well, in a Christian's I, mind? I think it's partly that. Uh, yeah. Let me give one example about religious liberty. The, the uh, Using a word like religious liberty is so problematic because, for example, uh, the vice presidential candidate under Donald Trump is named Mike Pence, and Mike Pence in his state wanted to outlaw bringing in Syrian refugees. Well, the irony is there are many Christians who's, who driven by their love of Christ want to help Syrian re mm, refugees. Mm. And so 
it's just so ironic that he is willing to limit the religious liberty of people who want to help mm. <laughs> Syrian mm. refugees. And what it really ends up being is about gay people and transgendered people, I think. Mm. Uh, and so uh, it's just ironic that abortion and the issue of LGBT uh, status end up being, pardon the pun, but the trump cards uh, right. that underlie everything. And I think the deeper issue there is an issue of patriarchy. Mm. How, how much, though, um, I mean, there, I know there have been surveys in that, that appear to show um, Trump having a lot of support from white evangelicals. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have thrown their hands up at that. Now, some have said, oh, well, if you look a bit deeper, how many of those are actually committed churchgoers or other, or other is that simply the thing they tick and, yeah. and so on? And I think what I've, I, in my newsfeed at least, yes. I've seen a lot of diversity on, on people who would definitely class themselves evangelical. Yes. But, and, and who are ashamed, you know, aghast at people like yes. Metaxas and so on yeah. doing what they're doing. And, you know, and you've got people like Max Lucado saying, yeah. You can't vote, you know, yes, you may be a Republican voter, but this time you just can't vote yes. for Trump because of who he is yes. and so on. Um, so I wouldn't say it's, it's it's as though everyone's getting behind. No. And in fact, just Trump. today, uh, uh, just today, uh, a group of us who are from evangelical backgrounds have made a pretty big public statement on this subject. So uh, we're hoping more and more evangelicals will speak out. You know, everyone's hesitant to make any comparisons to uh to you know Hitler and Nazi Germany and so on but but when a person runs a strong man campaign and uses statements like punch him in the face if a, some, a, to, mm. for a protester th- there are a whole lot of us who just say a person who's willing to th- threaten that kind of violence uh, shouldn't be in charge of the nuclear codes <laughs> I mean we're just thinking this this is wrong for our country it's wrong for the world yeah um, a person with that kind of an irascible temperament is there, you know, uh, it, people know what they're voting for, it seems mm. to me. So we're going to take a break. Um, you're listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. I'm editor of Pre- Premier Christianity magazine. And if you want to get hold of a free sample copy of the mag and uh, that features interviews with all kinds of interesting people, including people like my guest, Brian McLaren, today, uh, why not go to our website and ask for one? premierchristianity.com slash free sample. I'm talking to Brian McLaren, author of The Great Spiritual Migration. I'm going to be talking about that, his latest book in a moment's time, subtitled How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to Be Christian. We'll be back in a moment's time. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's programme. I'm Justin Briley, editor of Premier Christianity magazine, bringing you today's edition of The Profile with my special guest, Brian D. McLaren. He's the best-selling author of books like A New Kind of Christianity and A Generous Orthodoxy. His latest book is The Great Spiritual Migration, How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to Be Christian. We've been hearing about Brian's life uh, growing up in a Christian home and some of the pros and cons of the kind of religious uh, evangelistic uh, evangelical I should say culture that he grew up in 
um, and also how he's used his platform to uh, advocate for a new kind of Christianity in the last several years. Um, if you want to uh, to listen back to today's uh, interview, you can, of course, do that on our website, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. And uh, again, if you want to get more interviews with leading Christians in all walks of life, do check out the website of the magazine, premierchristianity.com. Um, so you've you've written uh, this book and you seem to produce about a, a book a year, Brian, or something like that. You're a writer mm-hmm. uh, as well as a pastor and a, and mm-hmm. a speaker. Um, I've, obviously, there's been a theme, though, mm-hmm. running through yeah. a lot, all of your books, really, over the last decade yeah. or more. Um, so what, in what way does this kind of continue this story that you've started, really, with a new kind of Christian in terms of, of looking again at? the christian yes. faith and and on what we're, we're trying to be and yeah. what people are, are kind of struggling with and the questions they're asking yeah have you got any answers this time as well <laughs> <laughs> that's a great great way to say it you know because i think early on in a process all you can say is something's wrong yeah and then you can maybe go a little farther and say well i think these three or these five or these seven things are wrong mm. uh and then you start to get a sense of what needs to happen to get us through to a better place and and that's w- what i feel this book uh, does uh, I, I'm talking about three profound shifts, three migrations mm. that I think are key for us as we move forward. Um, some people will like one of them. Uh, some will dislike one of them. But I think uh, these are my three that I think are, are really necessary. It might be a, an analogy to a person who's very ill and a doctor says, you must get more exercise, you must have a better diet, and you know you must reduce your stress. Mm. Well, all three of those things right. are important. I mean, when it comes to a spiritual migration I, I remember and she sadly passed away recently but she has the most fantastic name as well but the theologian Phyllis Tickle yes. in, in the USA talked about um, the great spiritual kind of transitions that, of the church over, yes. and she saw us in this day and age being in another great kind of spiritual change yes. um, are you kind of picking up on that yes. kind of an idea so Phyllis and I were, were close friends and she passed away while I was writing this book right. and, and and there's a bit of homage to her book The Great Emergence yes. uh, uh, in the title and if you were to Phyllis is writing about us emerging and coming out of something and then I'm trying to say here's where I think we're going right so you're you're very much complementing what she was talking yes, about yes exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and in that sense the church has in the past experienced huge exactly. huge changes revolutions you yes. know um you you could see the, the split of the eastern the western yes. church early on as being yeah. one of those and then of course you've got the the reformation 500 yes. years ago um so what kind of a revolution do yeah. you think is happening in the church today so the the first of these migrations i talk about is uh, what i call a spiritual migration from defining the faith as a system of beliefs to a way of life mm. And this is nothing new. We've been grappling with this for centuries. But you, you might say it like this. The more we argue about which beliefs are correct, mm. the more we strengthen our agreement that the purpose of Christian faith is to hold up a list of beliefs. Right. We might argue about which ones are right, but the point is a, a list of beliefs. And uh, I think beliefs are important. I think they're interesting. Mm. Um, but... I, I have to be honest, as I go back to the scriptures, I don't hear, you know, I don't read in the gospel someone's, uh, you know, a Pharisee came up to Jesus and said, what is the great commandment? And Jesus said, thou shalt have the correct beliefs, you know. This emphasis on love in the New Testament mm. is so significant. 
uh, as I was working on the book, it just hit me more than ever, you know. Paul says in in Romans, uh, the entire law can be summarized in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Or in Galatians, he says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And then you think, what is the power of love both in our individual lives, in our interpersonal relationships, our families, but then you extend it out to our political lives, our relationship to the earth that is under so, mm. such a great threat. Mm. And so I think that we could be on the verge of, of, I could say it like this, instead of becoming the religion of dogma, becoming the religion of love. And I know that's easy to say, and some people think that's very mushy and all the rest, but the fact is love is the most demanding calling we could possibly have. And I think a lot of Christians will want to agree with you. Mm. Of course, love is central, you know. Mm. Uh, after all, you know, that passage in First Corinthians yeah. where Paul described love, and it's like this this beautiful poet poem yes. in the midst of what is often Paul dealing with doctrinal debates and mm -hmm. issues, you know. Now, and so the question is, though, do you sort of, can you abandon doctrinal mm. statements, creeds, those kinds of things and just say, we just need to love each other? Or do we, yeah. is it helpful sometimes yeah. to, to, for love to be, to be shown and exercised within a certain framework of, yes. of, of, of uh, uh, you know, that, that can actually be quite helpful in, in making love actually accessible yes. and happen? Well, obviously, different Christians are going to come to different perspectives on this, and I'm not trying to legislate the only way to do this. But I would say, for just on the very basic level, there's a, a, a cart and horse question, you know. Uh, would Would we like to see love as the horse, as the driver, of this, mm. as the energy that pulls mm. us forward. Uh, and then we can talk about uh, our doctrines from that context. It's interesting, there's a great American theologian, he died uh, about a decade ago, uh, named uh, William McClendon, and uh, William James McClendon, and he wrote a great systematic uh, theology that was actually a narrative theology, but he, he had three volumes, Doctrine, Ethics, and Witness, and he put ethics first, and emphasizing love because he said if we don't know how to be a community who can stay together when we disagree then we will never have a community that can deal with doctrine and witness and mm. I think mm. the priority of love is, is, is significant easy to say but I, I, I think we have over well over a thousand years really over 1500 years in the west of practicing the priority mm. of beliefs I guess, though, you always come down to that question. You, maybe love needs to be our overarching aim, uh, our driving thing. And when we do disagree, we do it in that spirit of love. We don't allow um, negativity yes. and, and hatred and bitterness to, yes. to become the prevailing narrative. Yes, I, I, I think so. But I can just say there is a there is something even deeper going on. Mm. And if I were to just be acting as a journalist or a reporter here, here's what I'd say. In most of our churches... Uh, so many wonderful things are going on. Mm. Um, but uh, but the bottom line ends up being if you don't accept this list of beliefs, you do not belong here. Mm. Um, and if you do, you do belong here. And I, that's, I understand the history behind that and so on. I just think as we move forward, that's going to become a bigger and bigger problem. Um, but but what, what, I, I guess my question is then what's the... That is there a baseline? I mean, when you know, in my church, when we welcome new new members, yeah. they may they 
affirm certain yeah. truths, promises, you know, um, that they believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. And um, they uh, and, you know, it's it, it, we don't ask them to sign a massive, long yes. sort of doctrinal statement, yes. uh, you know, but we do ask them to affirm some basic beliefs about what it means yes. to be a Christian. Um, and those are, in a sense, yes, statements of belief, yes. as well as statements about their what they want to do with yes. their life and the love they want to express and so on. Now, there's been a case recently in, in Canada of yes. um, a woman who heads up a, a church yes. in, in Canada. I, I, think my, I don't know if it's Episcopal or the... It, um, yes, it's uh, United Church of Canada. United Church yes. of Canada, that's it. And she has declared that she doesn't believe in God. She yes. is an atheist, effectively. Yes. But she wants to continue in yeah. this position of as being a church leader. Her, her congregation, majority of them apparently supporting her in that. Yes. But the the, the prevailing body have said mm. no. Yes. You can't that you have. We we've been very kind of you know we've yeah. let you go a long way if you like yeah. it, away yeah. from what people might consider orthodox Christian beliefs, yes. but. That's saying I I can minister at a church and not believe in God is yes. is one step too far. Yes. Now is that a step too far for you, Brian? Well, it, it certainly is for the United Church of Canada because they, you know, and this is where we our our churches have they have every right to set boundaries. That's mm. I'm not saying that's, yeah. uh, but uh, there's two things I would say about that. The first one is uh, if a church says this is one of our essential beliefs and you don't hold it, they have every reason to say okay. you don't belong here. Right. Uh, the and, and and the example of Greta Vosper is a is a, a pretty extreme example where mm-hmm. you, you know you can see that. The interesting thing, I'll tell you though, this is a tangent, but okay. the number of evangelical Christian pastors who've confided to me that they're not sure they believe right. in God anymore is way higher than a lot of people okay. would ever get. So she may just be being a bit more public about where she's at than some and, people are in private. And if we can step back, and I understand there are reasons for people to say you're in or you're out. I'm not quarreling yeah. with that. But if we just step back a bit and say, what does that tell us? And one of the things it tells us is that the way we talk about God and a lot of our assumptions about God are are under they're under stress in these days. Um, and a way I could say it is that, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, the universe that most people woke up in, in in their brain, mm. was a very limited universe, a few thousand years old. Uh, and what has changed in our understanding of the universe is so amazing when you think about it in the mm. last few centuries. That to speak of God as the creator of one universe, you know, 500 years ago is a series of crystal spheres. It was actually mm-hmm. an aquarium kind of universe. And now this universe of quarks and mm. galaxies and all the rest, uh, what we mean when we say the word God is under great stress. Right, and and sure. we're really struggling with, with that. And it's something that we have to, you know, wake up to. That's really the the middle third of this book is about our uh, our, our understanding of God. And and so that is under deep stress, um, and uh, the, you know we have the short term decisions about will the United Church of Canada keep uh, a particular pastor. Mm-hmm. I understand all those decisions, but it, there are longer term issues that have to do with how our understanding of God changes. And one of the key issues that I'm interested in is: Do we believe that God is violent? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one that I, I also understand is very controversial for a lot of people, sure. but I think we have to get it on the table. Yeah. Um, 
Greg Boyd is yes. um, publishing a book soon on this theme. Uh, and he, I think, in common with you and, and others, is is of the view that we have to re well look again uh, in a new light at certain passages of scripture which may mm. appear to suggest that god commanded killing and yes. and uh, and that sort of thing uh there are many who would see that him and you and others as as really going against yes. the, the the basic nature of the bible as yeah. as kind of being a, an authoritative revelation of of god acting yeah. at different times in different places and so on um what do you do then yeah. yourself as a pastor yeah. and and as a writer with with some of the passages of scripture which do seem to suggest that god has initiated yes. uh, certain types of violence and so on many evangelicals i know would say that, that was necessary a necessary corrective at the time god god is the only being that does have the authority to yes. give and take life and so yes. you know it's his prerogative and so on um What's, what's your yes, take on it? Well, well, first of all, you can see going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, where this these issues of theology suddenly become very practical. Mm. Because uh, if evan- conservative evangelical and conservative Catholic Christians help Donald Trump get elected, and three years from now he decides that he wants to press the button for nuclear war, um, you can bet that there will be a lot of people saying this is God's will. Uh, it's just the way these things go. And uh, and I think the realization that uh, that what people do in the name of God it can can go to lengths that we find nightmarish, but in the heat of the moment they become possible. That's why at a time like this, I think we ought to have a, a discussion about mm. about the nature of God. Mm. Um, in fact, probably the chapter in the book that I'm most happy about is uh, I I I've been grappling with how we deal with Scripture. Because I love the scriptures, mm. I believe in them more deeply now than ever have. But I, I, but believing doesn't mean abandoning critical thinking. Mm. And I think if we allow ourselves to bring all of our brains into gear in dealing with the scriptures, I think we'll start to notice different things. So, for example, uh, I, I think we'll find passages uh, that do depict God as commanding genocide. But then we find other passages that critique those passages. Mm-hmm. And I think what we start to find in the Bible is, is this amazing library that presents a series of arguments about God. And you hear many sides of an argument in the pages of Scripture. And this, as a Christian, is why, for me, Jesus becomes so absolutely essential and, and so glorious and wonderful is because Jesus, if we actually believe Jesus reveals God, then Jesus reveals God as nonviolent. Um, Jesus doesn't kill anybody. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't torture anybody. Jesus doesn't ask his followers to kill or torture anybody. In fact, Jesus sends his, the risen Christ sends his followers out to preach good news to the very people who have, uh, mm-hmm. have uh, you know, killed him. So, Was uh, Jesus a pacifist? So I don't get it. I don't get involved in arguments about a term like that because it's been used in in so many different ways but uh jesus doesn't command his disciples to kill anyone mm-hmm. and in fact commands them to turn the other cheek so i think this tradition of nonviolent resistance uh, not passive but mm-hmm. active nonviolent resistance that's what i see jesus yeah. exemplifying and um and i think we uh and i think we're still struggling with 
with believing in his ideal. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, these were all issues that you debated at some length with um, me hosting that discussion between you and Andrew Wilson yes. a couple of yes. years ago, um, uh, which was great. And we, we kind of went into some depth on issues around, um, you, you know, uh, well, a number of different yes. issues. That, yes. and, and if if you're interested in, in maybe following some of this up and, and hearing that critical engagement with uh, was a really good theological discussion with we Andrew Wilson. We did have a very good discussion. Um, then then do do go go to the website and um, and check that out as well or search for Brian McLaren, Andrew Wilson, Premier. It, it'll come up in your on Google, I'm sure. Mm. Um, but sticking coming back to the book, um, and in the, in the, the last few minutes we've got. I want to get to the the missional side. This is the yes. third the third angle that yes. you believe that we're transitioning into a a new kind of yes. um, I, I guess a new age for Christianity. Yeah. If that's not not too much of a loaded term. Um, so, so what's the missional sure. side? So uh, I can illustrate this by something that happens to me quite often. I'll be on an airplane traveling somewhere to speak, and I get into a conversation with the person next to me, and and they say, "What do you do for a living?" And eventually, I guess I was a pastor. Now I'm a writer. And what do you write about? And when there's this uncomfortable silence, and the person will say, "Well, I'm I'm not into organized religion," mm. and that's I've somewhat playfully uh, will say, uh, "What is it you don't like about organized religion?" And usually they can't put it into words. Right. But when we go a little bit deeper, I'll say, "Well, it, do you think the world would be better if religion were worse organized? <laughs> we could just have disorganized religion; everything would be great." And then we, I, I'll then propose to them: maybe the problem is that religion is organized for the wrong purposes. Hmm. And when I say that, people say, "That's it." And then I'll say, "Well, what purposes do you wish religion would be organized for?" And we get into a great discussion there. Hmm. But the the fact is. Uh, we're facing some monumental global crises. And this is what everything within me says the Spirit of God is telling me to be concerned about. Uh, we, we face this global crisis of how we're going to live with our planet. Are we going to continue to extract more resources out of it than it can provide and pump more toxins into it than it can detoxify? Oh, my goodness, how we live with the planet is such a big issue. The church could be the primary organizing grounds to help people, to help our entire planet, mm, mm. Uh, all of human civilization go through the kind of change that we need. Yeah. Or we could miss the opportunity mm. and be the last to get on board. Um, the issue of this growing gap between rich and poor, what would it mean if our churches really organized us to understand poverty um, and understand the causes of poverty? and? to take an active role in seeing what yeah. we could do together to reduce this growing gap between rich and poor. I mean, it's not as though this is a new idea for the church. No. I mean, the church has historically, uh, yes. you know, and very much in its early inception as well, been yes. that kind of a, yes. a force in society. It really has. So are you calling us into something new or simply to go back to something that we kind of forgot about? I, I don't care. Either way. <laughs> Uh, either way. I mean, I think we face new challenges in this now because, uh, for example, we've never had the kind of global climate crisis that we have now. Mm. We've never had this global e economy sure. that is uh, that you don't have to do anything in mm. this new economy and the rich will get richer. Right. It's just set up that way. Yeah. How we're going to deal with that is a new challenge, I think, and, and on a new scale. Uh, and, um, uh, and our challenges regarding peacemaking, we're in a... a unique situation in the history of the world where the world's two largest religions, Christianity and Islam, have to, we have to figure out how to get along within our own communities mm. and across uh, yeah. between communities. And 
Uh, these are new challenges where the church can rise to the occasion or be absent without leave. And the question occurs to me, um, the, these are, you know, things that many people would agree on, whether they're Christian or not, yes. religious or not, um, that we should be addressing and tackling and so on. So why for you is it important that the church is yeah. a significant player in that? It, yeah. Perhaps the the player in yeah. that. What? Why? Why? You know, could we? You know, what's wrong with abandoning the church and just saying, "Hey, guys, yes. we know what we need to do. Let's just go yes. and do it." And f- frankly, this is what a lot of people have done. Sure. They've just said the church is going to suck up all of our energy, and if we want to make a difference, we have to work elsewhere. Mm. I, I love the church, so I think that's. I'm sad for the church when yeah. that happens, but I also believe that. I believe in Jesus, and I think Jesus was right. And I believe that the motivation that Jesus taught us of love for God, self, neighbor, enemy, earth, that that motivation is the only motivation that can really take us where we need to go. I don't Mm. think ideology can do it. Uh, I I don't think politics can do it. I don't think just markets and economics can do it. I really think it's a spiritual migration. It's a spiritual movement that we need. So So the church isn't kind of something that's just going to be discarded as a sort of well that worked for a while you think the church is the, the church is the future it's just it's going to look like a different kind of church i mean a really honest answer to that is it depends it right. depends on how we act you know okay. i think we're at pivotal moment uh and uh i you know i i trust that the spirit of god never gives up and whoever is cooperating with the spirit of god mm. that's going to be where the church is is mm. alive yeah. But uh, I do think we're at a moment of great uh, opportunity if we were to seize the moment, but it requires some courage and creativity to do so. I mean, I was encouraged to hear that at the end there, Brian, you talking about the fact that you do feel Jesus motivates you and, and as far as you can see, motivates spiritual transformation, which yeah. which makes people want to go out and do, yeah. do this stuff in the world. Um, I mean... you have you come to a point in your life where having had all those questions you know a decade or two back you've come to a point where if someone asked you Brian why are you a Christian yeah what would you well what would you say to them now sort of you know yeah with all that time and water under the bridge yeah I have never in my life come across anything with as much promise and hope as Jesus his message his life his example uh what what his early followers dared to do and believe so, uh, there, you know, I, I often feel like that moment in the Gospel of John where uh, Jesus says to the disciples, are you going to leave? Because mm. a lot of people had left. And Peter said, well, where else would we go? Where else can we? Uh, you, are, you, you, you have the words of life. Uh, and I don't see those words of life anywhere in the world articulated as they are in, in Christ. So uh, I, this is the irony, you know, where this word evangelical has become so contested. I really believe Jesus' good news is the best news the world has. Mm. Um, I, I don't want to equate the limits of that good news with a Christian religion. Right. But I believe Jesus was right. Okay. And, um, uh, and that's where I'm, my motivation uh, is stronger than ever. Brian, thank you very much for being my guest on The Profile today. If you want to get hold of Brian's latest book published by uh, Hodder and Stoughton, 
the great spiritual migration, how the world's largest religion is seeking a better way to be Christian. Available, I'm sure, from all good bookstores online and everywhere else. Uh, you've been listening to The Profile. Uh, my guest, Brian McLaren. I'm Justin Briley. And uh, again, if you would like to get hold of the latest copy of Premier Christianity magazine, and Brian has featured in the pages frequently over the years, uh, then why not get hold of one via our website? Absolutely free. Just ask for one at premierchristianity.com slash free sample brian thank you for being with me today thank you what great questions i've enjoyed it (laughs) do stay here on premier christian radio coming up next the best of premier from the past week with dave rose